Welcome everyone and welcome to a few people who didn't, who weren't able to make it last week. And uh, I mentioned earlier, maybe you didn't hear, but at the end of the class, if you didn't sign in last week, if you wouldn't mind signing in. And then in particular, if you didn't uh, get an email, uh, I think a couple emails have now been sent to the group, then next to your name and your email printed neatly, you can maybe make a star and then I'll make sure that you get on the email list for the course. So, um, the seven factors of awakening really come, it's, it's really uh, in the scheme of the four foundations of mindfulness, a number of you were in that course in the fall, relative to a lot of the other practices or a lot of the other maps that we've worked with, it's a more refined map of the mind. But just because it's a more refined map doesn't mean for us gross types <laughs> plodding along with our practice that it isn't a useful map for us. So, for example, uh, when we were in the fall, we were studying the fourth foundation of mindfulness and just a brief summary for people who weren't in that class. It's just uh, the B Buddha's famous talk on mindfulness inviting us to be mindful of the body and mind. And the body is the five physical senses. And then the mind he broke up into three categories, being mindful of feeling tone, the pleasantness and unpleasantness. So when we're having experience, the mind interprets the experience as pleasant or unpleasant and to be mindful of that. That's one aspect of the mind. Another more obvious in a way part of the mind is just to notice how the mind is being colored. You know, is the mind contracted or expansive? Is the mind with aversion or with kindness? So we're just noticing the mind. And then the third category, often translated as mindfulness of mental qualities, is really looking at the skillfulness. So we're looking at the mind in terms of whether it's moving toward release or moving toward contraction. Trying to understand the mind as an unfolding process. And given how the mind is unfolding, how it's moving, is it getting more and more contracted, caught up, or is it loosening up, freeing up? And in that last scheme, the fourth foundation of mindfulness, the fourth way, and I forget who it was that suggested this, but this seems really right. You know, the Buddha gives many ways to be mindful, and it wasn't so much that, well, we have to do all these different ways. It was more like, well, be mindful of your breath. You know, that's the first one, mindfulness of the body. One way to be mindful of the body is to be mindful of your breathing. And mindfulness of breathing can take us all the way to the mind releasing everything it needs to release. But if that doesn't work, then start to pay attention to mindfulness of feeling. And if that doesn't work, you can be mindful of the colorings in the mind. And if that doesn't work, you can sort of use these different maps to basically reveal or illuminate the cause for the mind still gripping. So that's a nice way to think of why it's complicated, why there are so many instructions. 
is uh, we were given more and more to do until we illuminate what we're not yet seeing. Because the problem is we're not seeing something. So we keep getting stuck. So in that fourth foundation, the Buddha invites us to see the different hindrances in the mind and to learn how to prevent those hindrances like greediness or aversion from coming in and how to abandon them when they do come in. He invites us to be mindful of the aggregates, the mind and body, in terms of how it's always coming and going. So when we, whatever part of the body or whatever part of the mind we look at, we can train the mind to notice that it's a dynamic thing coming and going, which loosens the whole notion of a fixed sense of self because our direct experiences, things are coming and going. Whatever part of the mind I pay attention to, it's fluid. Whatever part of the body I pay attention to, it's fluid. And then he teaches us or invites us to pay attention to the six sense gates and to notice how we tend to react to what we're sensitive to and how we can be sensitive without reactivity. And it's only then when we have some sense of how not to be reactive to our sensory experience, to being sensitive, that he invites us to take up the seven factors of awakening, which is what this course is about. And it's really um, a refinement of the mind. So now the mind is relatively balanced, awake. We're not so caught by the hindrances of greed and aversion and dullness and restlessness and doubt. So we have some, let's say, relative space from those hindrances, those afflictive mind states. We're not gripping, you know, the mind isn't gripping to a narrow sense of self constructing a narrow sense of self with thought. And the mind is aware of, you know, the senses of the body and the qualities of the mind, but it's just letting, just letting that come and go. Still, we can be in that state and not be free. So at that point, the Buddha invites us to develop until it can't be developed anymore, these seven qualities. So we're developing mindfulness. We're kind of helping it ripen mindfulness and investigation and effort or energy and joy or rapture, tranquility, concentration and equanimity. Both in terms of a sort of a spiraling. And if you want to hear more about this, you can look at, I sent you the link. Uh, to Ajahn Tanisro's book, Wings to Awakening, on his, in his chapter on the seven factors of awakening. And the way he lays it out, he has maybe five pages or so of an introduction. And then he lists a lot of the discourses of the Buddha that relate to the seven factors of awakening. And in that introduction, in that sort of his analysis or description of the seven factors, he talks about how you can think of it in terms of spiraling, like we develop and perfect the presence of mindfulness like we did tonight in our set developing mindfulness really has to do with the continuity because in a moment it's relatively easy for us to be mindful to recognize whatever it is that we're recognizing to recognize it's just this being known but it's a whole nother thing 
to do that moment by moment by moment. And I think last week I said at the very end, I forget what the word I used, but maybe the torment of continuity. Because it's intense. To be continuous with mindfulness is intense. So I would really encourage you to continue throughout the course to play with that intensity, to get interested and to enjoy that play of uh, not forgetting, the sustaining of present moment awareness. And you can work with uh, periods of silence, which will help you refine what that continuity is. Because one of the initial ways we maintain continuity is we talk to ourselves. Okay, okay, Mark, pay attention, breathing in. You know, we use words, thinking, and then we complain when we lose it a little bit. And so it's sort of like a Dharma coach in the background, sort of keeping us in the game. And then we want to begin to see if we can tease that out, just let that fall away. Because it refines the effort. We're purifying the effort that's required for that sustained present moment awareness. It doesn't require the mind, the Dharma coach. So uh, we're going to, the spiraling effect is like we, we develop the mindfulness, perfect it. And, you know, when we've got that continuity, of course, the mind is going to, the mindfulness is going to, not even mark, but the mindfulness itself will investigate. That's what it does as the power, the continuity, and the power that comes from that continuity, as it gets a momentum, it's just going to comprehend. That's what it does. It's going to figure things out, not intellectually, of course, but directly experientially. It's going to understand the nature of experience. That's the investigation part. And we develop that. We purify that. We really set it in motion. And that, that sort of mind, the sustained mindfulness, now being applied in a systematic way, which is comprehending how it is. That's the investigation. If that is so focused that ripples of joy begin to move through the mind and body. The mind is delighting in the singleness of its purpose, which is to understand things as they are. It is a joyful endeavor in the same way that we, we feel lousy when our mind is fragmented and pulled in ten different directions and doubt and second-guessing ourselves and striving to make it different than it is. and That feels lousy. And when... There's a singleness in the mind. It feels great. And we've all bumped into that experience in different relatively superficial and sometimes profound ways. And the joy that comes, the rapture that comes out of that, which can be also developed by recognizing it, you know, and it, the recognition, it's like, right, what are we doing? Well, we're compromising. We've got that sustain, that great momentum of continuity of mindfulness, and it's being channeled into comprehension of the way things are. Well, as the joy starts to ripple through, well, of course, that's just going to be the object of comprehension, right? Because we're comprehending the way things are, and now there's joy. And, of course, comprehending joy is a great treat, you know, opening Seeing joy, seeing rapture for what it is, is a great treat. And the whole system begins to relax into tranquility. 
and tranquility into stillness. And, and uh, the deep stillness of the mind, the peace of the mind, allows for a shift of view from like feeling like my purpose as a human being is to kind of make things right to the shift of view where equanimity is more pronounced, which is an impartiality, not needing to do anything with experience. That's the view, leaving experience alone. So like Thich Nhat Hanh, instead of equanimity, he uses the phrase letting go here for this, for upeka, uh, um, equanimity. He doesn't call it equanimity. He says letting go. And that's, that's like a shift in view that happens as the seventh factor of awakening comes into development and perfects itself. And then, of course, when there's a lot of that impartiality, it's easy to have the continuity of mindfulness, right? Because what gets in the way of the continuity of mindfulness? What do we trip over? Well, all of a sudden, we're not impartial, right? We're there with the body and the mind, the experience of the present moment, but something about the mind and body experience trips us. We're not equanimous with it. We react to it. So when the equanimity starts to kick in, then the continuity of mindfulness gains momentum. And then investigation or comprehension gains momentum and energy and joy and more tranquility, more stillness, more equanimity, more letting go. So this is the spiraling description of the seven factors. So it's sort of a, a circular model, you know, where, and, but, it, but increasing. So all the, all the factors sort of supporting the next and then back to the first and on and on like that. As the sort of purification and development of the mind. One of the words that's used a lot in Buddhism is bhavana. Like some of you know, Bhante Gunaratana, his monastery in West Virginia is called the Bhavana Society. And Bhavana means, often gets translated as mental development. But that has, you know, that sounds a little different. But it's really about this engine. It's like the setting emotion, and, you know, using the description from this course, setting emotion, the seven factors of awakening as an engine. And as you know, for those of you who've been studying the Buddhist teachings for a while, the Buddha spent very little time talking about the experience of an awakened mind. And instead, he spent a lot of time talking about how that happens, how the awakening process happens, how it can be set in motion in our mind. So he wasn't so interested in telling us because we would just conceptualize it anyway, you know, and then it would be something we would talk about. And already that happens. I mean, even, you know, at places like Kamagon, let alone more academic places, you know, people can spend lifetimes studying these teachings, thinking about the teachings philosophically. And it's, you know, as philosophy goes, it's very interesting. But the, the point is to uh, understand that there are these, um, these tendencies, these this sort of lawfulness of the mind, and the Buddha and otherwise people have mapped out the way the mind works. And we can sort of, as we take the map and apply it to our experience, we can basically unleash these natural forces in the mind. 
these spiraling forces in the mind that allow for bhavana, the development of the mind. And it can happen very quickly in a course of a half an hour sit. We can go from being an ordinary mundane person to having a very bright, still, powerful mind. Powerful in the sense that it's not confused by experience. And it's and in this particular example, it's not confused by power. Now, normally, if we bumped into a lot of power, you know, we'd be confused. We'd sort of take it personally, like tripping out, like, oh, yeah, power. <laughs> but the way, this, the way this process works, you know, equanimity, this transformation of view is embedded in the cycling. So as the power develops, the power of mindfulness, of investigation, of energy, of rapture, tranquility, of stillness, then the deepening of equanimity, the transformation of view, of the understanding that I don't need to do anything with this power. You know, the power is sort of uh, is simply about understanding and not about fixing or getting rid of or getting someplace, but just understanding the process itself like the cycling itself. And that's what I meant by how when, you know, when we have continuity of mindfulness and we investigate that force of that continuity gets channeled towards investigating or comprehending the present moment and the energy that arises in that singleness and turning into rapture. Well, all of that is what's getting investigated because that's all the present moment that's happening in the present moment. So the object of the investigation is the cycling through the movement through the seven factors. And of course, keeping it all in balance, keeping it from sort of getting wobbly, like too much energy or too much tranquility. And of course, the other view that Ajahn Tanisro explains much better than I can is more of a holographic view. So instead of a more linear movement through the factors and, you know, one's not right and, you know, as opposed to the other, they're just different ways of understanding what actually happens in our mind. But in any moment, of course, to some degree, the factor of equanimity is either active or not so active. And tranquility is either active or not so active. And what we'll do in the guided sits for the next few weeks, we'll probably do something to calm down. And then we'll, we'll make little resolves. And you can begin to play with this in your sits at home. So when, you're, when you feel like you have some sustained present moment awareness, you can just invite the mind to recognize any one of the seven factors that seems relevant, to recognize it as it is actually present in the mind, however subtle or um, weak, feeble it might be, or strong and developed it might be. But just to make, literally make a mental resolve, and you can even do this with language. So you might say silently in your mind, there, you know, you're there, you're present. And then it occurs to you in the present moment, of course, Oh, Mark mentioned about making resolves. I'll make a resolve. And you make the resolve, let's say, around energy. And you could say something like, 
May this mind recognize the enlightenment factor or the awakening factor of energy as it actually is occurring in the mind. And then you stop that piece and you just go back to what you were doing anyway. The, sort of the intention to be, to have the continuity, the sustaining present moment awareness, either you know with silence or with the breath, focused on the breath. But, of course, the energy will arise in that activity. You don't have to like do a different activity to notice the energy or the rapture or the tranquility or the concentration or the equanimity. It will be right there in the basic practice of sustained present moment awareness. Except that we may have sustained present moment awareness of energy and really understand what is the quality of energy in the mind or rapture in the mind. And we, we, uh, this is where it's important to have uh, the seed of faith. You know, we have to believe that the mind will respond to an honest request, a sincere request. And we have to have some faith that these factors actually are factors of this mind. <laughs> you know, they're not just sort of some abstraction that some academic came up with. But somebody with, uh, you know, why not just assume that this model arose out of somebody's mind that was very, very clear and uh, in understanding his or her mind at a level that was universal, not sort of specific to their conditioning, but something about the very fabric of mind, capital M, all of our minds together. And that's been my experience. You know, the more I've worked with the different models that the Buddha laid out. And again, you know, it's always like, well, you're just, your mind is just creating that. But I find that, that there's actually like something that comes alive in my experience that reflects the teachings amazingly well. And it's always astounded, astounding to me. And it always makes me wonder, did I just create that? Like, you know, because I'm looking for it, am I creating it? And, you know, who knows? But the point is that it's skillful. Like when this model, this map comes online, we have so much more skill in operating the mind and being with the mind, being in the world than we do when we haven't sort of used these maps to illuminate how it all works. I mean, nobody would intentionally go around life in a front, dull, you know, uh, under the influence of afflictive mind states, right? I mean, we do a lot of the time. <laughs> I put myself in that boat, right? But we wouldn't do it on purpose. We do it because we don't think there are any options. And so one of the, the reason I'm bringing up faith is we have to... Uh, we have to at least open our mind to the fact that that there are these really beautiful, wholesome qualities that, in a sense, are just waiting to be released, waiting to be developed and released in the mind. They just need, just require some systematic effort. 
And uh, the first step really is this uh, work with mindfulness. I'll just say a few more things before we break up into small groups. I mentioned last week briefly about um, diligence or this word apamada, which means sometimes vigilance or diligence. Practitioners, this is from the Buddha, practitioners, whatever states there are that are wholesome, partaking of the wholesome, pertaining to the wholesome, they are all rooted in diligence, converge upon diligence, and diligence is declared to be chief among them. When a practitioner is diligent, it is expected that she will develop and cultivate the seven factors of awakening. So the initial... This is really what I mean by faith or confidence. Nothing happens without the application of the mind. We have to apply the mind to the task at hand, which is the present moment. And basically, most of our habit energy now is the non-application of our mind to the present moment. (laughs) That's how it is. And so it does take this particular effort. And that's why I made that provocative statement last week about the torment, the intensity of sustaining present moment awareness, really learning the basic move in spiritual life, which is applying the mind to the here and now. But not to the here and now in terms of our ideas of the here and now. We're applying the mind to the here and now independent of our ideas of the here and now. So that's what we mean by mindfulness. Mindfulness isn't judging the present moment in terms of what we are ideas or concepts of things. It's a direct, in a sense, a direct sensitivity or a direct knowing. And uh, that takes some practice, you know, obviously for all of us, even for those of us who've been practicing for a number of decades now, Um, I don't know anybody who wouldn't consider themselves a beginner at this. It's not easy to be mindful in a continuous way. But one of the things that experienced beginners can say with confidence is it's amazingly powerful in those moments where there is the continuity of mindfulness. It is clearly... Uh, a different kind of reality when we have a sustained present moment awareness versus when we're operating with our normal, fragmented, distracted mind. (laughs) The Buddha, somebody asked the Buddha, in what way, Venerable Sir, is one called an unwise dolt? (laughs) I don't know what the Pali word was, but that's a great translation. Practitioners, it is because one has not developed and cultivated the seven factors of enlightenment that one is called an unwise dolt. <laughs> so let me just share one more thing. Let me take, I have to decide if we want to take the time. I wanted to give a little bit of sense of the, how the different factors are integrated and how the seven factors are integrated into the bigger path. And I'll just explain it briefly and then maybe next week we'll spend more time. 
But there's a particular occasion when a, a wanderer, an ascetic, Kundalia, visited the Buddha and asked the Buddha this wonderful question. And some of you know this, but one of the things you find when you read a lot of the discourses, it really matters the kind of questions people ask the Buddha and how they ask the question. Um, Ajahn Tanisro has a new book out. I forget what it's called. Something of Questions. The Dharma of, Dhamma of Questions, is it? Anybody remember the title? Anyway, he just the monastery just sent us a couple copies. And uh, it's, Ajahn Tanisro is just talking about how some questions, the way people would ask, the Buddha just wouldn't answer. It's like there was nothing he could do to work with it. Other times when people would ask a question, it was close enough that the Buddha could tell the person how to ask the question. You say, no, no, don't ask that question. Better to ask this question. And then they'd ask that question, then he'd answer it. You know? And sometimes they'd ask a question, and it would be just the right kind of question, and he could just give a straightforward answer to the question. So this uh, wandering ascetic, uh, Kundalaya, uh, asked good questions. The first question was, uh, he asked, what, in what reward does the Venerable Gotama, that was his family name, dwell? Like, what is the reward of whatever you've done? And he says, uh, the Buddha responded, the Tathagata dwells experiencing the reward of the fruits of clear knowing and release. So, He's abiding, the, the sort of fruit of his practice and his awakening is, the result is clear knowing and the release that flows from seeing things as they are. That's sort of a nice direct answer. And then the ascetic asks, but what are the qualities that when developed and pursued lead to the culmination of clear knowing and release? And the Buddha answers the seven factors of awakening. And what are the qualities? What are the qualities that lead to the culmination of the seven factors of awakening? The four foundations of mindfulness: mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of feeling and the mind, and mindfulness of how the mind works, how it's skillful sometimes and unskillful other times. And what qualities lead to the culmination of the four frames of reference or the four foundations of mindfulness? And he talks about sila. You know, writes speech, right thought, right action, that the integrity of that, like right speech, right thought, right action that's in alignment with the truth, with non-separation, maybe we could say. And then what is the, what leads to that restraint of the senses, right? Because that's the source of ethical conduct as we we feel like we want to punch the person. We feel like we want to take somebody's new iPhone. We, but we don't. We refrain from doing those things because we understand even though I desire it, it's not right. And he goes on then to sort of uh, spend more time explaining how these things work together, which I'll look, look at uh, maybe next week uh, some more. So for people who are new to the Buddhist Studies course, every other week we break out into groups of three. It's just a chance, and it's a beautiful, for some people especially, an intense practice, but sitting close together, a chance to practice speaking as best we can directly from our own experience, what we're seeing, 
in terms of our formal and informal practice. And, uh, and then also, of course, when you're not talking, it's the practice of completely receiving what the other person has to say and not evaluating, not judging, not needing to respond to what they're saying, but to become open, and which is really a state of intimacy and love and just receive, oh, this is this person's experience. This is as best they can share it. And I'm here to just listen and to receive what they have to say. So we do that formally. Everybody gets two or three minutes. And then there's about five minutes at the end for people just to talk informally about anything related to the course or your practice or whatever's come up in the discussions, the sharings. So it's nice once you get in your small groups to decide who's the order so you don't have to sort of figure that out in the middle of it. You decide the order. If you're close enough, you can hear me ring the bell and I'll keep time for you. But if you're in one of the far off places, then uh, choose somebody to keep time so that everybody gets uh, a time to speak. And the topic today can be just uh, sharing with each other about your experience with the continuity of mindfulness and what gets in the way and what does that transformation feel like when there are moments of continuity? How does the shape or quality of the mind begin to change with the continuity or the sustaining present moment awareness? And then any other reflections about mindfulness, about that particular effort to not forget, that to maintain or sustain that present moment awareness? Say some things about what that effort is like. What effort is too much? What effort is too little? How you've missed the mark with the effort? How you've sort of nailed it, got it just right in some moments in your practice? How it is informally through the day? How, it, how does it manifest in the formal sitting time? How does it relate to when you have a specific anchor for your attention versus more of an open attention? So these are all things that might seem relevant to share in the small group. So why don't you take a few seconds now and just reflect about what might be relevant, something you might want to share in the small group. And then we'll count off by uh, maybe 15 Scott, maybe you'd start. So we'll count by 15 and then start over. Uh, Jonathan? Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen. Oh, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I counted earlier. <laughs> um, so, how about group one and two in the office? And one can be in my office, and two in Shelley and Debbie's office. 
and then three, four, and five in the community room, six and seven in the lobby, eight on the white couch downstairs. You might want to bring your jackets. Um, nine by Susan, 10, 11 in that corner, 12, 13 by Ollie and Mark, 14 maybe somewhere here, and 15, you can go wherever you want, but why don't you meet by that door? And so somebody from group one can come and get my feet to my office. Oh, thanks, Matt. Uh, three minutes per person, and then whatever time's left for an open discussion at the end. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.